Hey, church family. So good to be with you again on this Sunday and good to worship again together. Just a, excuse me, a reminder that we have started outside worship and have been doing that for the last couple of weeks. And hopefully we, we'd love to have you join us. But again, as I've said before, we also understand uh, and uh, want you to be cautious and safe. And we're trying to do the same things, but we'd love to have you join us and, and worship with us. But in any case, whether it's in person or online, we're just so glad that you've come to join us in worship together and, and so glad to be with you. And uh, whether we are part or together, we're still one in Christ. And uh, it's good to worship together and encourage each other so that we're, we're glad that you're with us this morning. Story goes that a uh, bar was scheduled to open up right next to a church building. And the church was concerned about the bar opening up, obviously. And so they, they decided that they would schedule a week-long prayer meeting. They were going to pray about this bar and pray that it didn't open up um, before it was even scheduled to open up. And so the week before the bar was scheduled to open up, they, they had this prayer meeting. They met all week to pray. And on the last night that they were uh, praying, the last night of this prayer meeting, there was a big thunderstorm that rolled through town and lightning just happened to strike the, the bar, the building that the bar was going to be in, uh, right before its grand opening and burned it to the ground. Now, everybody in town, including the bar owner, knew that the church was strongly opposed to this bar moving in right next to the church. And they knew, he knew, that they were spending this week before the bar was scheduled to open, week before it burned down as well. They, he knew that they had scheduled this week-long prayer meeting where they were praying to God that the bar would not open. And so when the bar burned down, he was so upset that he filed a civil suit against the church on the grounds that the church was ultimately responsible for the demise of his building, whether that be indirectly or directly. The church, on the other hand, had to, had to hire an attorney to claim that they had no responsibility whatsoever for what happened to that bar. And so as the case made its way to the court, the judge overlooked the paperwork, and at the hearing he commented and he said, I don't know how I'm going to decide this case. But one thing I do know, it appears that we have a bar owner who believes in the power of prayer and an entire church congregation who doesn't. Now that's an urban legend, but it still rings quite true. How many of us have prayed and asked God to move and work and, and we asked him for something and in the back of our minds, we really were thinking there is no way this is going to happen. Or how many times have we prayed for God to work and to move in some situation and we're surprised that he moved in response to a prayer? Sometimes I wonder if my level of surprise at times with God moving is indicative of my lack of faith in my own life by the measure of how surprised that I am. We are in the midst of a series called Going Viral in which we're journeying through the book of Acts and we're examining what it looks like when the message of Jesus goes viral. And today our journey brings us to a story that involves the power of prayer. But as we'll see, we're not the only ones who struggle with believing much while praying for much. Even the early church did. So let's pick up the story in Acts chapter 12 and we'll start in verse 1. Luke writes, It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. And when he saw that this, met, that this was met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. 
This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So the Herod here is not the Herod that was ruling at the time Jesus was born. This is a different Herod. This is Herod Agrippa. And Herod Agrippa, while he was king over the Jews, his main job was really to serve the Roman Empire. And one of the ways that he served the Roman Empire was by keeping the Jews in his jurisdiction happy. Of all the Herods that we read about in antiquity, it's Herod Agrippa who had the greatest reputation for being most amicable toward the Jews. He kept them happy and appeased because keeping them happy and appeased made him look good in front of the Caesar all the way back in Rome. Now, by this point in Acts chapter 12, the church is a few years old by now, and it's grown to thousands by this time there in Jerusalem and in the surrounding areas. And it's becoming increasingly a sense, a serious source of consternation and frustration among the Jewish religious leaders. They just can't seem to stop this Jesus movement. And so Herod Agrippa decides that he's going to throw the Jewish religious leaders a bone. And so he rounds up a bunch of believers, some of whom are leaders in the church there in Jerusalem. And in purely a political move, he has James, a leader in the church there in Jerusalem, a brother to John, one of the earliest and original disciples of Jesus. And James is also an original disciple of Jesus himself. Agrippa has James put to death with the sword. And in the blink of an eye, The church loses one of its main leaders, and John loses a brother. And when Agrippa heard or saw how much this pleased the Jews, he thought he'd go for another significant figurehead in the Jesus movement there in Jerusalem. And so he goes after Peter, and he has Peter locked up. But Agrippa runs out of time before he can do the same thing to Peter that he had just, just done to James, because it's time for the Passover. And any favor that Agrippa would hope to incur with the Jews for taking Peter's head off would be undone if he killed Peter during Passover. And so he puts Peter on lockdown and he waits for the Passover to pass by as he prepares a public sham trial for Peter. Of course, if you've been reading up to this point in Acts, you know that this is not the first time that Peter has seen the inside of a prison cell. But this time, Agrippa is not messing around. He puts four squads of four soldiers each guarding Peter. So Peter is guarded by 16 Roman soldiers. And as we'll read in just a moment, as uh, verse 6 tells us, Peter is even chained between two of them. And so this is maximum security prison. And Peter is on death row. He's going to die the same way James did. And he's not getting out this time. Verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison... But the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Now, I want to stop right there because I want you to get the picture. And I want you to see, notice how it's written. Because there's a little word right in the middle, a little conjunction that I think has huge implications. It's just three letters. But. One of these days, I I want to do a sermon series on all the big buts in the Bible. Although I probably need to watch the name that I name it. But in all seriousness, there are some incredible verses throughout scripture with this little conjunction that has such huge implications. And this passage right here is one of them. 
Just notice the juxtaposition in this verse. Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. It's written in such a way as though prayer was an equal and appropriate response to Peter being in prison. It's written in such a way as though prayer was the first and greatest thing that they could be doing at this moment. And what's so curious here is that this group of disciples, their understanding and faith of who Jesus is and what he came to do is growing by leaps and bounds because when Jesus was arrested in Gethsemane, before he was put on trial and before he was convicted and, and ultimately crucified, but when, when Peter or Jesus was crucified in Gethsemane, it was Peter who responded by raising a sword in the air and attempting to decapitate a man. But now when Peter is arrested, it's the church that responds by getting on its knees. And the only thing that's raised in the air is hands in prayer to God. Because the church, they realize that this Jesus movement advances not through the raising of swords, but through the raising of hands in prayer to God. And that word earnestly is interesting. The church was earnestly praying to God. That word earnestly is the Greek word ektenos. It literally means to stretch out, to stretch out in prayer. They're, they're stretching themselves out in prayer to God. It's an image that implies both this continuous, ongoing praying, as well as literally getting in a prostrate position, laying out on your hands and knees, stretching out before the Lord. But it could also mean, I think, something even more powerful, that they're spiritually stretching out in prayer before God, even in the midst of their own disappointment and doubt and pain, because you have to remember, James has just been put to death. He's just been killed. And don't you know they prayed for James too? And here they are, stretching out in prayer, earnestly praying to God for Peter. Have you ever begged God in prayer for something? Maybe even got down on your hands and your knees, desperately begging God to work and to move in some circumstance or some situation in your life, stretching yourself, not just physically, but spiritually and emotionally, stretching yourself out before God in prayer. If you've ever done that, if you've ever been there, then you know what the church here in Acts chapter 12 is going through. So while the church is earnestly praying, what's Peter doing? Verse six, the night before Peter, or excuse me, the night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains and sentries stood guard at the entrance. The church is praying and Peter is sleeping. He's on death row. James has already been executing, executed, and it's just a matter of days before Peter himself is probably going to be executed in the same way that, that uh, James was. And yet, Peter, he's sleeping. Would you be sleeping if you knew that you were going to die and be executed in just a couple of days? You only had a couple of days left to live. But it shows me that the church is not the only ones growing. Peter's growing as well. Because if you remember, he had a time earlier in his life when he and the other disciples, if you remember all the way back in Mark chapter 4, they got upset with Jesus. For, they're, they're out on the, on, the, on the water and they're in a boat and Jesus is sleeping underneath the, the deck, sleeping in the midst of a storm. And now Peter is sleeping in the midst of his own storm. Peter, in essence, has become as Jesus is which is really the essence of discipleship in and of itself, where you literally become as Jesus is, even right in the middle of a storm. And Peter 
is sleeping right in the middle of his own storm. Peter would later say in 1 Peter chapter 5, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Peter knew that because he lived that. Jesus' peace had become his, and for him to be sleeping under the weight of such circumstances is a testimony to us that long before he'd be free from a, a physical prison, he'd already been set free from the prison of anxiety and worry. Verse seven, suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrist. So get this, Peter is sleeping so soundly that even the light from an angelic being in the cell with him doesn't wake him up. This, the angel has to, to poke him in the side or even strike him in the side, it says, for, to, to wake Peter up. That's how soundly Peter is sleeping. Verse 8, then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and your sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. I love that. Peter came to himself. The whole time he thought it was a vision, he passed through two sets of guards, iron gates, walked an entire block in freedom, and didn't know it was for real. Which goes to show that at times there can be some lag time between what God does in reality in your life and when the time when you actually realize that God is doing it. Let's read on, verse 12. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. That's where they're praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. Now just imagine, Peter, he's a fugitive on the run at this point and he realizes that this is not this is not fake. This is not a vision. This is not a, uh, it's not a vision. This is not fake, but you get what I'm saying. It's not a vision. It's not a, a dream. This is for real. And now he's out there and he's knocking on the door and he hears her say, it's Peter. And he waits for the door to open and the door doesn't open. And I've got to be thinking, you know, what in the world is taking so long? How many deadbolts are on this door that you've got to unlatch all of them? But Rhoda, the girl who answered the door, she's so overwhelmed that instead of answering the door and letting Peter in, she goes back into the, interrupts the prayer meeting that they're having and tells them that Peter is at the door. I mean, it just blows my mind. And then how do they respond? How would you respond? Verse 15. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said it must be his angel. So get a load of this. The very people who probably brought Rhoda to the Lord, to faith in Jesus, and told her about the power of the Lord and the power of prayer, respond by telling her that she's out of her mind. And others of them, they're doing angel theology. They're saying, well, it must be his angel. And we'll have to talk about that deal some other time. But isn't it ironic? 
that a woman who came to the church with news that Peter was freed was judged to be delusional by the very church that was praying for him to be freed. And this is happening, get this, at Passover, when they're all Jewish believers celebrating the power of God to deliver their ancestors from Egyptian bondage, and they don't even have enough belief to know that their prayers have now freed their brother from bondage. Already the church is struggling, just like us. You see, so much of church life is about studying and celebrating and and, and, and considering the works of God in the past. And, and that's good. We ought to be doing that. That's part of how our faith grows. But woe be to us if we only think of God in terms of how he used to act and how he used to work in the past. Because the stories in the Old Testament and the stories in the New Testament aren't there to simply tell us how powerful God once was. They're there to tell us how powerful God is. That's why God's name is not I was. His name is I am. And this is so critical, but even the church is having trouble getting its head around it. Verse 16, but Peter kept on knocking. (laughs) Just love the visual. Peter kept on knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet. Just picture, I mean, they're they're overwhelmed. And Peter's like, I'm still a fugitive. You gotta be quiet. And he described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James, that's a different James, by the way, obviously. And the other brothers and sisters about this, he said. And then he left for another place. When they finally let Peter in, he testifies. Testifies about what God has done. And then he leaves. He's on the loose again. He's gone. Which just goes to show you that the story of your deliverance isn't meant to end with your deliverance. When God spares you from something... It's because he's also sparing you for something. Peter's on the loose. And Peter dives right back into the mission. And this thing is about to really go viral over the next several chapters. So what do we take away from Peter and prison and the power of prayer? Well, let me just give you a couple of takeaways for our lives this week. And the first is this. Faith is realizing that prayer is not a last resort but it is the first response. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Truth is, there was little else really that they could do. They had no political power. They had no rights. They had no representation. And yet maybe that was more of a blessing than a curse. Because anytime you get to a point in your life where you feel like prayer is your only option, you may be in a better position than you could ever realize for God to work and to move and for you to do something about that situation. You know, our world today, we say things like, well, there's nothing left to do. Our only option left is to pray. And listen, there there, more often than not is more to do beyond prayer. And we'll talk about that in just a second. But the first and greatest and truthfully most effective way to begin is with prayer. These disciples were disciples in the truest sense of the word because they were becoming like their master. Has it ever occurred to you that Jesus never taught his disciples how to preach? But he did teach them how to pray. And Jesus' disciples never asked him how to preach. They never said, Lord, teach us how to preach. They said, Lord, teach us how to pray. 
because they saw the fruit in his life. And when you walk through the Gospels, you find Jesus getting up early to pray, staying up late to pray, dismissing people to pray. He taught us to pray a prayer that many of us know by heart, the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, you know the rest. He cleansed the temple so that others could pray. And by the way, when he cleansed the temple, do you remember what he said? I'll tell you what he didn't say. He didn't say, my house will be called a house of study. He didn't say, my house will be called a house of preaching. He didn't say, my house will be called a house of fellowship. He didn't say, my house will be called a house of of singing. Now, those are all good things and all things that we do when we gather together and we worship God together. But those are not things that Jesus said. What did he say? He said, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. And this is true for every follower on the face of the earth, regardless of their nationality, regardless of their location, that Jesus came to make it possible, not just for you and me to have access to heaven when we die, but for you and me, he came to make it possible for you and me to have access to heaven before we die, to be able to live while we're still alive. And it's worth noting in scripture that as much as it disappoints me to say this, God never calls us never calls me to pray or to preach unceasingly. Now, I know it may feel like that sometimes that I've, I've attempting to, to obey that command on some Sunday mornings, but, but God never tells me to preach unceasingly, but he does tell me to pray unceasingly. And I'm just reminding us of some of the background for why prayer is, is not a last resort, but it's a first response. And second, I'll leave you with this. I think we learn that faith often involves more than hitting our knees, but also our feet hitting the floor and getting the door. Think about this. I find this so funny. Jesus once said to Peter, I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom. Peter, I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom. Peter's got keys to the kingdom of heaven, and yet he doesn't have keys to Mary's house. I just find that so ironic and hilarious. And even more than that, think about the angel. Why didn't the angel take Jesus all the way? Or excuse me, take Peter all the way. And the angel shows up, drops the chains off of him, opens prison doors, opens a city gate, walks him a block, and then strands him. I mean, why, why didn't the angel take him all the way to Mary's house and, and, and lead him to the door and, and just like miraculously open the door for the church to see? That image of Peter knocking at the door just gets to me. Because for all the times that we conceptualize prayer as knocking on the doors of heaven, what if the reverse is also true? That oftentimes the answers to our prayers may be banging on the door of our lives in the earthly realm, but the church has to learn to get up and get the door. God delivers Peter. He answers the church's prayers, but somebody's got to get up and get the door. And what if that's part of the praying unceasingly, the the getting the door part? And I just wonder if, if the old amen thing can sometimes be an illusion. Don't get me wrong. It's a good thing, and it's a good thing to do it. It, it, it signifies this, this agreement and this belief with what has just been prayed, but we kind of use it as a wrap-up to our prayers. And yet Jesus didn't put amen in the prayer that he taught us to pray. Maybe that's because all of life is meant to be a prayer to him. And the actual act of obedience after the prayer is a form of praying where you're getting up and you're getting the door. 
I like what one person said. They said, amen is not the end of a prayer. It just gets us ready to go to the next level. I love that. What if prayer was never meant to have an end? What if life was lived in light of the prayer? What if every act of obedience that God calls me to in scripture and in my life is just me opening up the door to the answer of God and the blessings of God on the other side? And so I pray and I invite that neighbor or that friend to church or to a Bible study. I pray and I give back to God what he's given to me. I pray and I reach out and forgive and reconcile with that person who's hurt me. I pray and I physically answer the door and step out in faith to what God is calling me to do and where God is calling me to go. I pray and I, you fill in the blank with the doors that God is knocking on in your life. Because faith is not just praying the prayer, but it's also getting off my knees and letting my feet hit the floor and getting the door. In just a few moments, we're gonna leave here and there's gonna be all kinds of ways that God may be calling you to get the door this week. And I hope you'll take advantage of those doors and those opportunities that God gives you. But I also hope that you'll start even right here and right now by going to your first response and stretching out to God in prayer. For some of us, we may need to stretch out to God in the face of our disappointments and our doubts and our pain. For the others of us, maybe we need to stretch out to God for a greater conviction and a greater devotion to our relationship with Jesus Christ. For others of us, and you know, maybe we need to stretch out in prayer for the apathy or the just the indifference that maybe we've had in our lives that we wanna, we wanna push out, that we want God to redeem and to heal and to move us in a different direction. Maybe for some of us, we need to stretch out in prayer in the sense that we just, the time that we spend in prayer needs to stretch out. We seem to go to him more. And listen, this doesn't just have to be an individual thing. Maybe you need to find somebody to stretch out in prayer with you. Let them help you and, and pray with you or maybe there's someone that you need to reach out to. Maybe there's a door that you need to answer, that you need to get, where somebody needs you. And you can stretch out in prayer with them and for them and encourage them. Because let me tell you, a church that prays together stays together. And a church that prays together and stays together is the kind of church that God can go viral through.